Hey Kyle, it's Dave Cookish. I just want to say I've been loving your podcast lately. I just moved to Santa Monica, California from Denver, Colorado, where I'm working as a cardiac surgery physician assistant. My friend Adam introduced me to your podcast a few weeks ago, and I've been loving going through the episodes. I love hearing about all your surf escapades and how to plan a surf trip, and I can't wait to hopefully plan my first trip to Baja this winter. Also, loving the environmental emphasis that you put on every episode, and I can't wait for my first Motherfucker Awards this winter. Anyways, thank you so much for all the amazing content, and be well. See ya. Hey, David, thanks for sending that in. I look forward to seeing you at the MOFAs this year. It's going to be quite a show. And uh, my guest of this episode will be presenting. Uh, I'm coming to you from Venice, California. I just recorded this episode about an hour ago on a yacht in Marina del Rey. Uh, Kaj and I had been trying to get together and do a podcast for a while. And he's like, hey, man, I have a buddy with a pretty sweet boat. So we could go record there. Uh, Went down to Marina del Rey. And this thing was like James Bond level amazing yacht. So... Uh, it was one of the cooler places I've had a chance to record a podcast. That's one of my favorite things about this whole setup is just how mobile it is. Keep my whole setup in my backpack and uh, it takes me to some crazy places. And speaking of being taken to some crazy places, uh, Kaj is probably one of the most well-traveled uh, people I know. He is a journalist and Navy SEAL, which has taken him all around the world. Um, and before I get into his bio, I've known Kosh since I was maybe 10 years old. He's a Santa Cruz native, and his dad lived on the same street that I was born on. Um, Kosh was a big influence in my life early on, um, getting me interested in journalism. And he's a few years older than me, and he was always really generous with his time, um, helping me when I was figuring out how to a- ask questions and set up interviews. Um, I always really respected, um, yeah, the amount of time, energy, and thought that he put into me um, and the stories that he tells. Um, a big theme of this podcast is nuance. Kaj is a Navy SEAL, um, and he has some really interesting perspectives on um, the military. Uh, and he is presenting the firearms category of the Motherfucker Awards this year. And I figured he'd be a perfect um, perfect person to do that because he has such a good perspective on this. He's also helped with a lot of the nominees to make sure that this silly stunt of ours has journalistic integrity. A little background on Kaj. Uh, Kaj is a journalist, correspondent, and producer. He's worked for Vice News, CNN, Now This, and Current TV. He worked for the Vanguard International News Documentary Investigative Reporting Show on Current TV beginning in 2005. He produced the documentary series Lock Up for MSNBC. In 2010, he became a producer and correspondent for CNN until he was laid off in 2012 after CNN abolished their investigative news departments. Following CNN, he became a correspondent for Vice News and uh, hosted the series Vice on HBO. In 2016, Larson hosted The Runner, an original series with executive producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, and he was also a senior correspondent for Now This News. The man has quite a resume. Uh, He also was, he kind of came onto the scene early on um, doing a story for, um, for current TV as he basically voluntarily waterboarded himself um, 
when the issue of waterboarding um, as torture was hot in the public domain, he just said, hey, you know, what? let's let's put this out in the public and actually show what it is. Um, that video went crazy, and uh, Kaj has been on a roll ever since. Um, we got into more topics than I can even talk about here, but um, Kaj is one of those people who it's for me it's it's quite an intellectual exercise to hang out with him um do podcasts with him because he's highly articulate and he really loves to dig into issues uh, and it's it's you know he's like this all the time i told him after the podcast i feel like whenever i hang out with you it's like a podcast because he really loves to dig in to um all kinds of important issues um, so you can see Kaj, uh, on December 3rd, if you come to the MOFAs, cause he will be presenting the firepower category there. Um, hope to see you all there. We have a few tickets left, so you can go to motherfuckerawards.com to get your tickets. Um, and if you want to send me a voice memo, you can record it on your phone and email it to info at kyle.surf. Before I get going, I want to send a huge thank you to Santa Cruz Medicinals for sponsoring each and every one of these episodes. They make potent CBD products. I use it for when I'm sore. Um, the, the shit works, and I really like it. Um, I give stuff. I give some of the products to my family members. My mom said it really helped with her sore knees, um, and they make really good stuff. So if you want to get some of their CBD products for a discount, you can go to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name KYLE10, and you'll get 10% off. So check it out. Um, and with that, I hope that you all enjoy this Veterans Day podcast with my friend, Kaj Larson. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Kaj Larson in the house. I know exactly how I want to start this conversation, my friend. Um, tell me about why you had to give Kyle Boothman a thousand dollars recently. Uh <laughs> <laughs> so Kyle Boothman, for people who don't know, is yeah. a longtime friend of both of ours, filmmaker. He's worked on a couple of vice shoots with you, surfer. Totally. Ripping surfer all around, gregarious, great guy. Um, this is so funny that that you say that. I completely forgotten about this like there's some way that this story makes me look like an extraordinary loyal like good samaritan good friend and then there's another way in which it makes me look like a complete idiot right and i suspect it's more the latter than the former right so okay uh yeah the context is like Boothman's one of our best friends from Santa Cruz, like really an extraordinary guy. Like I know him through you and through surfing. And then as he has developed into a filmmaker himself, I like was able to take him on some some crazy journeys. We, we went to Liberia together at the beginning of the Ebola crisis and shot this this crazy film that was nominated for a can lion about, you know, um, the lab apes of Liberia. So that was not the the uh, Ebola doc. That was the one about the apes that ended up on the island we off shot of it, Liberia. We shot it at the same time because right. while while we were planning it, we didn't expect this Ebola crisis to emerge. That and was right when it was breaking out. Right. We I were, remember Boothman telling me like, "Yeah, I'm going. There's this thing called Ebola, and I had never heard of it. It was like." 
at the, on the cusp. We were actually okay. too early. In Liberia, they were claiming that it was like, you know, they didn't use the term then, but fake news. Like the Liberians are like, no, 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 there's no Ebola here. In fact, the most popular song on the radio at the time was by this guy named DJ Shadow, an uh, Liberian rapper, and it was the Ebola song, and it was making fun of all these like Ebola warnings that had come out, like, uh, and it was like, I'm not gonna rap it well, certainly not gonna do a good Liberian rap, but it was basically like, no touching, no hugging, no kissing, no handshaking, no Ebola, right? right? And like, and then Liberians were making fun of it, uh, and then it just like, the you know if you map the epidemiology of it it like exploded exponentially um, right after we left and uh, our fixer from that journey the the local producer that we hired to help us who actually happened to be an American working for an NGO and as a journalist there he ended up getting Ebola he sh- was covering the Ebola story he shared cigarettes with someone who was infected we think. And yeah, American guy, his name was Ashoka. He ended up getting like flown all the way over. Crazy, crazy, crazy. So that was definitely like, I think, you know, Boothman's a well-traveled guy. He's traveled the world for surfing, but that was like a next level experience for both of us. Yeah, the heart of the crisis. But that has nothing to do with what (laughs) happened. That was only like context and backstory to say that like, you know, this is like my good buddy who like I you know I, I I love him like he's he's our he's our dude. Yeah, we all grew up in Santa Cruz together. Totally. There's a certain element of camaraderie there. Totally, totally. And he's you know, he's a slightly younger generation, but like I feel good to feel like I've helped mentor him into being the filmmaker that that he is. And uh I feel good that I um you know have you know been part of his mentorship community or whatever and yeah. uh, we're buddies. So anyways, I'm getting on a plane coming back from New York. I was like you know, partying or something, and it's like super early in the morning. It's like six a.m., and I'm like scrolling Instagram, you know, in my seat before the plane takes off, and I see this like weird post from Boothman in his story that just says, "Like I'm sorry." Period. And it seemed incredibly uncharacteristic of Boothman. Like what? In my own mind, maybe like you see what you want to see, but the narrative that I created was like, "Oh, like he obviously like." fucked up bad with the girl right right yeah, yeah. he's done something really bad and this is his like public self-emolulation public shaming of himself right apology but he's so not the type to do that totally it draws in more interest like okay what's the deal with this yeah, like he must have like things must be really bad and, yeah. and like you know uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> we don't have to analyze Boothman's relationship. His girlfriend's awesome. They travel the world together. Like, they were, and they were in Indonesia together on a surf trip. At the time, yes. right? So I was like, oh my God, like my, my, and like, you know, like I'm the kind of dude, like you pop a flare and you're in trouble, like your buddies, like I am there to help, you know? And so I just like wrote him really quick, like, hey bro, everything okay? And he wrote me back. And all the, in the meantime, like, you know, the flight attendant's giving like the speech about buckle your seatbelts, the plane's rolling off the taxiway, and he's like, No man, like I'm in trouble. I like and I was like, What's up? And he's like, I need money. Um and I knew he was traveling in Indonesia, so like who knew like who knew what happened? And I was like, okay. I was like, How much do you need? You know, and he's like, I need, you know, a thousand bucks. Um and so before I even like, con- like finished my correspondence, also there was like a t- you know, ticking clock because I was about to take off. So I just Venmoed him a thousand bucks real quick. And, um, and then I was like, hey, did you get it? And he's like, what? 
And I was like, the Venmo, I sent you the money. Like, you know, check your Venmo. He's like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. And it was at this point that, like, red flags, like, started to come up. And I was, like, his English, like, wasn't perfect. And this whole thing was uncharacteristic, Boothman, right? And I was like, I was like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, cancel that. Send it to this, like, random PayPal account, which I can't remember the name of it. I have a screenshot somewhere. It, it was, what it should have said was, like, you know, Indonesian scammer 101 at <laughs> gmail.com, right? But effectively, like, it all started to break down. So I'm having this dialogue with this guy, and I quickly come to realize as the plane's now, like, taxiing onto the runway that, like, this isn't Boothman. This dude has hacked Boothman's thing. And then I was like, I was like, dude, like, I was like, you know, get the fuck out of Boothman's DMs or whatever I said. And the guy's like, you know, like, whatever, you can't catch me you're never gonna do this to me and like at this point i'm like irate not only have i already sent a thousand bucks into the void right like but like now this guy is heckling me and haunting me or taunting me and i was like oh my god and i and like i just like flipped i flipped the switch and i was like i think i wrote him something to the effect of like motherfucker like we found bin laden you don't think you obviously didn't look who i am you don't think we can find you you know and then there was like a kind of pause in the in the sequencing of this thing and uh and then he obviously went to my profile and looked at, at like you know my background or whatever and like the like 180 that this <laughs> indonesian scammer did was like oh sir I am just kidding. I am like joking. Please, I'm going to give Boothman back his account. Meanwhile, Boothman, right, is sleeping this off in Indonesia because it's like three in the morning through this whole experience. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so finally, like the guy's like apologizing and he's like, he's like, okay, I'll get out now. Boothman can have this guy can have his account back, all this stuff. So anyways, Boothman the next morning in Indo wakes up to this text message thread of basically me like threatening this guy's life. Yeah. <laughs> he told so Boothman told me this yeah. this story uh after you did and he was on an outer island chasing a swell with no service. And then he gets back, he turns his phone on and Kaj Larson has sent him a thousand dollars on Venmo. It's <laughs> <laughs> like that's weird. <laughs> and then he goes to his profile and apparently the guy had been like here's your account back i'm very sorry and he goes through this text message of like <laughs> kaj in his dms being like you clearly didn't check out my profile i'm a navy seal motherfucker we're gonna find you and the guy being like i'm very sorry please don't <laughs> Yes, this is such a good win for my friends. Oh my god, it was awesome. Um, and you know, Boothman, the you know the epilogue <laughs> is he Venmoed me the thousand bucks back. He got his Insta account unhacked and back. No harm, no foul. Uh, one scared little Indonesian man later, and it was a win for the homies. Yeah, yeah, it was good. You know, I had a, a kind of similar scam issue uh, around the motherfucker awards. I don't know if I told you this. No. So. We had at Instagram motherfucker awards and uh, I was trying to do ads after the last show to help promote it and we couldn't do it because it had profanity in the name. So I, th so I started experimenting around and I started taking out vowels of the motherfucker awards. So now our Instagram is at motherfucker without um, the U and the, the E. It's what and all then, the cool companies are doing cool anyways. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, I realized that, okay, we we actually can't do advertising um, on Instagram if there's profanity in any aspect of the profile. Um, 
So I tried to then switch it back to at motherfucker awards and it said this profile has been taken. And there's posts that look like our posts, our logo, but someone had taken the profile. So I, I message him. I say, hey, uh, dude, you took our profile. Can we please get this back? And he says, I'm a fan. We are part of MOFA Army. And I'm like, uh, okay, well, hey, man, if you're a fan, please give us the thing back. And he's like, uh, no. I'm like, dude, he's like, there's nothing illegal about what I've done. I'm like, yeah, I know it's, okay, it's not illegal. It's just not fucking cool, dude. Like, give it back, please. Anyway, it turns out this dude is, has an algorithm. He's a well-known scammer who takes profiles um, the second they're off. And he's trying to get me to, to PayPal him like 10 grand to get the motherfucker awards back right? Which I'm like, dude, screw you. I'm not going to do this. But he's like, remember the name. And I won't say the guy's name here, but he's a well-known scammer. And I look him up on, on Google and there's an article about him about taking Google's URL. There was a moment when Google's domain renewed and they had a glitch in their, in their system where for like 10 seconds it went up on the market and this dude stole it from him, and they got it back immediately, and they paid him in the tune of six thousand. Was it? They paid him Google G, so six zero zero six one zero dot decimal one zero. So they paid him back Google to get it back to him as just like a you got us motherfucker, but give it back now. But that's this dude still has the at motherfucker awards instagram no dude i felt i was wait so why are we not saying his name i i well i forget the guys i forget the guy's name because i can't right. tell like if this like if i want to take this guy out and drown him in right. the marina right here or if like the nsa should hire him right one or the other yeah for sure but uh oh no i was so pissed it felt i felt like i had been robbed of something that I had worked so hard to build. And I'm like, dude, you're just taking this thing right now. Like, it, it was one of those weird feelings. Like, I don't know if you've ever, like, had your shit stolen from you or something, but you just feel so violated in that way. Oh, yeah. Well, look, both in the real world and the fake digital world, which people increasingly think is the real world, I've had it happen. I once had a motorcycle stolen, and I was, you know, not to go full Pulp Fiction, but it would have been, like worth it to have it stolen just so I could catch him stealing the motorcycle. <laughs> right. I was like unduly mad about this not expensive like Honda CBR that I was riding. But uh, look, I don't want to, I'm sure you don't want to either make this the all Insta show, but if you have capacity, I'll tell you another funny sure. Insta story. This is like, uh, there's this podcast, Call Her Daddy, these funny girls, funny hot girls out of New York. Um, and they're like 90% of their podcast is like Instagram advice, like masquerading as like sex and relationships advice. But all right. So here's an Instagram story. So my old girlfriend dating her, we were like kind of in a fight and she was at her house and like she wakes up the next morning and she's like, Hey, have you like been texting me? And it's basically like, no, like I'm mad at you. Like I'm not, I'm not texting you, right? Like, and uh, she's like, so you didn't text me this morning. I was like, no. Like, why would I text you? She's like, well, I got like this weird message from you on Instagram. This guy and like it was like pretty like flirtatious. And he started talking, like during, and she's like, she's like basically like, she's like, she's like somebody sent me this picture this morning. So she sends me a dick pic, right? 
that somebody had sent her on Instagram, right? Basically, this dude had made like a profile that was Kaj Larson, but he put like two J's in it. K-A-J-J-L-A-R-S-E-N. He took all my pictures, copied them, and made my full exact profile with like a few like like little baby tweaks that you really couldn't see at first glance. So it looked like me. And then he went and friend requested every girl who followed me, right? Almost as if like, oh, my account got deleted. Here I am. And then he started DMing like all of these girls on Instagram, right? And first like, hey, right? Including my current girlfriend at the time. And then he, and she was like, when she got the message, she was like half asleep and she's like, oh, hey, baby, I'm sorry or whatever. And she was like getting a little like flirtatious with him and he sends her a dick pic, right? And I was like, look, first of all, like this should be your first clue, like, you know, like, look, this guy's hairy, you know, like, huh? I'm like, I'm like a shaved otter, you know, like, I'm a hairless wonder, right? Like, so he thought it was your dick. No, she didn't. She, she thought it was your yeah, dick. No, like, I was like, you should know this is not like, not to reveal too much, but like, you should know this is not me. Yeah. Like, you've seen this thing before, yeah, right? right? You're like, should I be yeah. mad at you or right. mad at him? Yeah. But anyways, it turns out, so then I opened my Instagram and I started getting all of these messages from women friends of mine. Most of them are like, hey, I think somebody's impersonating you. I got all these like, like flirty, dick picky, sexy messages this morning, right? But a few of the girls were like, you know, who were like my friends, they're like, Kaj, I never know you felt this way about me before. <laughs> it was a disaster. Uh, and then I uh, I would finally was also able to like kind of like call Instagram because when you're verified, there's this like fast track where they like help you because it, it happens more often. But it happens like two to three times a week to me that somebody's like stealing my pictures and impersonating me. Uh, anyways, all's well that ends well. I ended up like keeping tabs on this dude. And there was this other guy who lives here in L.A. His name's Jason. He's a like, Vegas club promoter. Good guy. Really decent guy. And uh, as soon as, like, Instagram shut down his fake account of mine, he did the same thing to this guy. And I was able to, like, Tell him. warn him off, like, hey. It's a major thing, man. Scams. It's uh, in the digital age. A I think lot it's of bullshit. People- I think it's total bullshit. I think, um, like, listen, like, Target <clears throat> can use big data to know that you're pregnant before you know that you're pregnant, right? Yeah. Like the data analytics are like so deep and they're so good and the like the AI that they are building into these, like I think the tech companies have failed to police themselves and in fact they've done it purposefully, right? Or like with a purposeful ignorance that they have traded um, scale for security, Right. They let like you're telling me that Instagram, which like knows more about me and my demographic and like my audience and all of this stuff. Right. Can build all of these powerful data collection tools, but they can't build a data collection tool that tells you when some tool grabs my photos and makes a fake account. Like, absolutely. They just haven't prioritized this. And this is where I think a lot of like the tech clash that you're seeing now is coming from, right? They describe it as like, you know, the first inning of technology, we had this incredible romance with it, like the the power to bring people together and connection and like to see friends from far away and the information totally. at the world's fingertips. Yeah, your yeah, Jason were- Silva making all these YouTube yeah. videos about we're connecting it all and we're entering into, we're merging with the AI and it's central and it's going to be the greatest thing ever. And they're like, well, uh, suicide among 11-year-old girls has gone up 70%. 
percent, and you're like, plus, oh, ooh, plus, see that. plus fake news, plus no, proliferation of misinformation, plus like Russian interference in the election, right? So we're we're in like the 2.0, like the sober period of technology right now, recognizing like all of the peril and like all of the addictive behaviors associated with it, um, and all of this the scams, like you know, scams are not new; they've been around forever, but like everything seems to like um, multiply and proliferate faster in this new digital era. Do you think that government should police uh, these companies like Facebook more, given the impact that it's had on our country and on our world? Yeah, 100%, right? Like, um, and the reason is, is because the tech companies failed to police themselves, right? They had a choice way back early on in the Y2K 2000 days when all these companies were like building their principles and ethos, right? And the original conceit of these things is that they were just platforms and they were kind of open source. And it was, it was based in that culture, frankly, of like, you know, white male programmers. It was a very like homogenous monolithic culture that built these platforms. And that and look, they're incredibly powerful platforms and they're incredibly important and they can be used for good. We're talking about like the downsides here. So I don't want this to come off as Lydidic or you know anti-technology, right? Or you know, no, but it's a, it's an important right. conversation right. because I'm it's, talking it's a, elected our current president. Totally, I am talking about the the deleterious effects of technology right now. Like the promise is is pretty self-evident, I think, right? Like we're talking about kind of the downsides and how to mitigate and guard against it. And yeah, I think these guys, and I use guys specifically, mostly guys like had a choice in the early days, right? And they had a choice to curate the kind of community they wanted to live in, and they didn't choose to do that. They chose like massive scale as an alternative, right? And massive growth as opposed to curating a community of people that you wanted to live around. Like this behavior that we tolerate online, you would never tolerate in the real world like some asshole troll like if some asshole troll showed up at your house in your living room at your dinner table and said the things that they say anonymously online right or proliferated like you know conspiracy theories that hurt people or did any of this shit any of this troll shit like you'd beat them up or throw them out of your house Right. And like, but tech platforms didn't do that. They chose to. And not that I don't think that there is a place for open and free source expression. There are places for that. Right. Uh, you know, that's why these things are gray and complicated. Let's not forget that the ACLU, like, you know, went to the Supreme Court for the right of Nazis to march in the streets of Skokie, Illinois, right? Like, we, I believe in free speech. This is not about hindering free speech. This is about creating the kind of communities that we want to live in. And because increasingly we live online more and more, I think it's really important that we create good communities. And I, my opinion, obviously, is that this is what the a lot of the tech companies have failed to do. Yeah, uh, there's a guy named Tristan Harris, who was kind of, he was a Google um, engineer, and he's kind of known as the moral compass of Silicon Valley, and he has a really good analogy where he says, um, we decided not to put casinos everywhere in America, because we know that casinos are not good for community. So we have these spaces for casinos, um, and we're running now in this attention economy where 
everything these engineers are doing on these platforms is meant to keep you on site longer. And they're just creating as many, okay, casino, casino, like the, the Instagram actually uses a casino tactic, which is when you scroll down on Instagram, there's that little uh, wheel that 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 is a delay, which raises your cortisol levels, and then you get the new post, and there's a little dopamine hit, which isn't necessarily good for human health. It's not good for you feeling happier. You know, people are more anxious, but it does keep them on site longer. So the questions that he's asking are, you know, get, as you said, given that we're online more and more, what kind of communities do we want to create? Wait, you let me go on that long soliloquy when this dude Tristan had said it way better right. with a much <laughs> yeah. cleaner metaphor. Like, He's cool. No, you should check him out. No, no, that, uh, no, that that's ex- exactly my my point, right? Um, yeah, and I I think it's important and like, um, it's proliferating like a tremendous uh, amount of you know, like we're mashing together a lot of topics here. This isn't clean, but like you know, it's it's part of this problem of like the dispensing of of misinformation that's become rampant and prolific. Right. You know? uh, and uh, I mean, it is happening now. Where on on these social media platforms like Instagram stuff, you can um, you can flag words so that no one can comment if they want to say a certain word to you um and there are there's a lot of sensitive co- uh, content out there now where you know you have that kind of screen over the well, well, yeah. what do you think about that though like are we tackling these issues in the right way uh i uh, my gut tells me and this is like kind of far from my domain of expertise. I don't even know what my domain of expertise is, but it's not this. Um, Other than that, I live in the same world that we all live in. Uh, I suspect that the the tools that we have now are like pretty early stage and, and crude compared to like what we need ultimately to help like remedy some of this stuff. Like I have this, I have this theory, like working theory that um, we are such in the early stage of this a- attention economy, right? Like, attention economy is not new, right? And they used to call advertising executives in the 20s attention brokers, right? Like, that was their job, was to, to, to gain your eyeballs and attention, right? And we still talk about eyeballs. Those are still the metrics that, that tech companies use, colloquially. Um, but I th- we're basically in, like, the first generation of real digital natives, right? Kids who don't know what a number two pencil is, like kids who like don't have the same like tactile experiences that you and I did growing up, right? Like um, I see it in, in the gym that I own, um, where, where some of our coaches are, have, you know, you know, one-year-old new babies and stuff and like, boom, these, they're so adept at like nine months and like 12 months and like 15 months at like using iPads and stuff like that. Right. It's crazy. So we're in, so we're in the 1.0 stage. We're in, we're in the first real iteration of this digital native thing. And I don't think we under even can begin to understand the long term effects of that. I think future generations might judge us really harshly in terms of like, holy shit, like you let your child like stare at that screen for eight hours a day we don't we haven't built the safeguards that we haven't built the rails and the safeguards on these technologies sure. that probably will come back later the the metaphor is the birth control pill some of those early birth control pills we had no idea of the dosage 
that was the 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 dosage for both birth control pills in like the 50s and the 60s used to be like 10x what it is today right and we found that we could actually like way reduce the dosage and get the same effect might be true with some of these technologies yeah, that We're is at 10x that is, a dosage right now yeah that is a good analogy um as far as issues that you think we will be judged for harshly um i'm gonna zoom way out because i think that you have a really you are you have your fingers on the pulse of a lot of issues um and you're a journalist, so you know you're media literate. What are the issues that frighten you most right now? Mm. Wow. Uh, that is an interesting question. Um, so, um, not Condoleezza Rice. Who is the other African-American woman national security advisor, not from the Bush administration? Susan Rice. The other Rice. Like, yeah. Uh, you can see why I conflate those too, right? So uh, Susan Rice, uh, Obama's national security advisor, said this thing in an interview the other day um, that the greatest threat to national security is our current domestic discourse. Let that sink in for a second. Like China's in the South China Sea, right, taking over islands, right? Like we have like a proxy war happening in Syria, which we just pulled out of, and Erdogan is like flying into Turkey, right? Which some people think will allow ISIS to reconstitute, right? You have like a Russian aggression in the North Atlantic and in the Arctic Sea. We have like all of these like Russia, China, North Korea, uh, Iran, right? These are the, the big the big countries, right? Plus, like, terrorism, right? All of these national security threats. The national security advisor for Obama. That's not what she mentioned. None of those. Nuclear weapons, the proliferation of nuclear weapons, loose nukes, as my old professor Graham Allison would say. None of these, according to her, are the greatest threat to national security. It's our current domestic discourse. Hmm. Rhetoric will destroy the country. It's not the rhetoric. It's the divisiveness of our current political discourse. We can't make good and competent decisions about national security, about foreign policy, about domestic policy, about infrastructure replacement, even about cultural issues, right? Because our discourse is so divisive. We are so, like, left and right. Like, we have lost all ability to find, like, centrist... Central solutions yeah. or, or whatever, right? We're so polarized. We're so opposite. Like, there's so much vitriol in our politics. And we become so atomized in these little uh, echo chambers, and we want to be right so the other team can be wrong. And, I mean, it's really common now that you'll have huge groups of people that have never even heard the other side's argument. Right. To, to like or the, or the only argument that they've heard from the other side is a straw man argument made by one of their allies. So profound and on point. And, and if you think about that, that is, that's really crazy. You're talking about filter bubbles, which somewhat filters back into the technological conversation we were, we were having a minute ago. Um, and there's a bunch of subheadings underneath this umbrella of the divisiveness of our domestic political discourse, right? Uh, I would call one of those subheadings like um, the rise of, um, uh, of identity politics, right? Like we've always had identity politics. I feel like identity politics have been weaponized in a, in a new way under the, 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 whatever, the last couple of years, right? Uh, so you have identity politics, you have like gender and social issues, you have um, all of this, 
all of this stuff that is making our ability like to find common ground and, and find pragmatic solutions more difficult. Um, and so, yeah, that, I, I know that sounds broad. I, I can like drill down into details, but, um, yeah, like I think that's a real problem. Yeah. I mean, it can some be summed up. Um, the, the way what I'm hearing is that another way to talk about that is the issue is tribalism. Totally. So, uh, it used to be, it, we, I might have even said this to you before, like when you really, really scale back, right, which is kind of what what your interrogative was in, in the beginning, when you really, really scale back, you know, for the last 50 years, like starting with the Cold War at the end of World War II, really ramping up in like the, the early 1950s, right, into the space race, into Vietnam, into the, the Cold War, the great tension in the world was this like, tension between capitalism and communism, right? That was the major ideologies that were clashing around the world, and you saw all of this, like, proxy action happening, right? Um, that appears no longer to be the case. Like, that question of what economic system, at least for now, seems to have been considered largely settled, right? Like, capitalism, we allowed capital ro to roam freely around the globe, and it, and it seemed to be pretty voracious in its ability to do so. But now we're fighting a couple different things, like I would argue um, uh, tribalism being one, um, the, the rise of uh, autocratic leaders, like so nationalism and despotism sort of wrapped into to one umbrella. Um, and then finally... What's, what's despotism? A, a, a despot would be like an autocratic leader, um, like a, a dictator, right? They're not perfect synonyms, but like um, I'll give you... Concrete examples, uh, Duterte in the Philippines, Bolsonaro in um, Brazil, in Brazil uh, you know, sort of autocrats around the world, right? Um, you know, some people would say Donald Trump in the United States, right, have these, like, autocratic tendencies. Vladimir Putin certainly in Russia qualifies, right? Um, so these... Uh, so, you know, wrap despotism and nationalism in, in one category, um, wrap tribalism in a, another category, um, and then finally corporatism, right? The rise of corporate power. Corporations have gotten more and more powerful by any measure, uh, and that's why you're seeing these, you know, massive amounts of, of inequality, hence, hence the book we're looking at over here. So those are our modern-day isms that are dangerous, right? Those are the tensions of this, this current environment that we have to figure out. Yeah, and there's real suffering on the other side of that. I think that it's important also to recognize that there are massive costs to, um, you look at just corporatism, right, and, and what's happened to our government, what's happened, to, as, as you know more than most, just what's happened to the um, mechanism that was meant to rein corporate power back and the mechanism to protect people. I mean, I'm, my background is in environmental in the environmental space, and just seeing what has happened in regards to you know, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, like more and more every single day, these mechanisms to protect people and the planet are being rolled back um, for the benefit of corporate profit. Um, I want to let you get into this book because it seems like this this book talks a lot about what we were just mentioning is that yeah shit i i wish i had finished it instead of just reading the first couple <laughs> right. of chapters but like no i just read this book called winners take all which right. like kind of you know hit me hit me in the gut when i read it because it was um there's just those books that like thump and 
I've always felt this at some level, but not really been able to, you know, assimilate all of the arguments. But it, essentially, what he's doing is he's calling like our system of inequality, you know, into check, which in itself is not a new argument. But what he really does is says that all of these institutions that we revere, like nonprofits and thought leadership and all of this stuff that we consider good and positive because we're socialized to think so, you, you know, name the benevolent foundation and name the benevolent work that this social entrepreneur is doing. He basically says like, yeah, yeah, that's all great. All it's really doing is reinforcing this system of inequality between the haves and the have-nots, right? And he really, really kind of breaks it down, and it makes you kind of call into question everything that you think is good, right? You and I have spent a lot of time doing nonprofit work. That is, like, good, earnest work that we're proud of. What he says is that, like, on scale, a lot of what that's doing is a Band-Aid um, solution to distract from like the real system of inequality um, and the numbers, the empiricism kind of bears that out. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's like whoa. I I haven't gotten to the end yet. I have a pile of books like this that I need to get through on my nightstand. I haven't gotten to the end of this one. So yet, so but. is the argument that that the nonprofit work and the way we've set ourselves up, where um, the winners in our society can just donate a little bit of their wealth to try and put out a fire with, you know, a cup of water with a can of gasoline totally. in the other hand and, like, saying that that just pacifies people in all the wrong ways. Yeah, and, and think about it like, okay, so, you know, I helped start this this large veterans organization, right? Um, you know, and at, there was a point where... What was it called? The mission continues. And we gave returning veterans fellowships to do stints in public service something i believe in 100 percent, still believe in I, I i live my values in this i engage in public service i think it's really important for veterans right and uh, there was one point where uh, goldman giving which is goldman sachs uh foundation arm uh gave us 20 million dollars pledged 20 million dollars to us which at the time was the largest grant in the veteran service space to that time. So sub substantial, significant amount of money. But like, here's the dirty truth. It's like politics. Like, somebody gives you $20 million. Are you then going to use your platform to question everything that Goldman is doing in the world? Hell no. Like, that's your lifeline. That's your bread and butter. And so what he's saying is even like, I'm totally putting words in Anand's mouth here, but like I think what he's saying from from what I've got there so far is like even really good, well-intentioned um, ideas and initiatives like that are corrupted by the entire systemic mechanism, right? And that, um, yeah, so anyways. Did, so, did, did that make sense? No, like, it, did, it does. And I think that this is, I, I love these kinds of conversations because I think that it's really important for us to be talking about and it's important to have nuance in. And, and one of the takeaways that I've heard you say earlier, just in terms of the, the issues of, of tribalism, is be able to have a nuanced perspective, be able to um, have respectful discourse with people, you know, be able to not just get on one team and get on one ism team, right? It's like a the great Ferris Bueller once said, I don't believe in isms, I just believe in me. <laughs> but I think that that's, that's more true now than ever. I mean, you should be able to um, have some conservative views. You should be able to have some liberal views. You should be able to sit down at the table with a lot of people to come to, to more likely than not some centrist solution. Um, yeah, and, and go for can it. I interrupt you yeah, for, go for a, it. a second? Like, look, I, I, I think also sometimes like 
we do ourselves a disservice by thinking in this left-right paradigm, like left-right-center paradigm. I think the... Uh, there's a better mental framing model, which you alluded to in your first sentence, which is that there's like a lack of, of nuance in discourse, right? To come back to our, our great threat. Um, like the lack of nuance and ability to communicate with each other is incredibly corrosive to, to our social structures and our society. And here, here's a case in point. Sometimes when people ask me what party I am, right? Sorry if this is too political. You know, I'm, Dude, we're I'm going a, for I'm it. I'm a policy I, I love this. Yeah, you, you know. I love it. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, as Aristotle said, a political animal, right? Um, if people ask me my political affiliation, right, like, you know, people like like to transpose a lot of their ideas onto you, right? Like, you know, progressives think I'm a progressive. Like, conservatives think I'm a conservative because of my military background, right? But then, you know, conveniently, like... Like everything else, like ignore the fact that I went to UC Santa Cruz, right? And I <laughs> yeah. grew up on campus, right? Like, this doesn't compute. Like, I don't get it. It's not supposed to compute because, like, the reason it doesn't compute is because we can't have a nuanced, layered, and even textured and contradictory conversation. So if I'm giving shorthand for people, like, I don't really want to engage in the conversation, like, cause, uh, because I'm a little bit of a political junkie, like a politicoaholic, like, I'm actually trying to push it away. But because, like, I'm an addict, I fall off the bandwagon that I right. get sucked back into the conversation. But if I'm trying to like just, you know, give a shorthand answer that I don't care about, I'll basically be like, especially if I don't want to engage in a, a substantive, serious conversation, I, I usually say like, oh, well, I'm pro-gun and I'm pro-choice, so there's no political party for me in the American political system, hmm. right? Um, true? Sort of. But not really. It's actually a completely disingenuous statement, right? Because I am neither pro-gun, nor pro-choice, right? What I really believe is that the shared common thread between these issues of gun control and abortion is that, uh, and this is my true political nuanced belief on it, is that they should share the same mantra, which is that they should be safe, legal, and rare. We used to talk about a, abortion in this country as something that should be safe, legal, and rare, that respects a woman's uh, right to choose what happens to her own body, right? We've never actually used that mantra to talk about guns in America, right? But like safe, legal, and rare, like for me, the first step, which still respects the second amendment, um, is the, f the first step is like, let's make them safe, right? Like, let's make them safe. <laughs> like, let's, let's, let's figure out how to lock up your guns, right? Like, um, I, I don't want to, like, you know, open a whole can of worms. You're going to get it. killed. You're going to get killed by the trolls online and like, you know, like the gun nuts and all this stuff, right? And like, I'm a Navy SEAL. Like I can say, like you know, <laughs> have I have I told you this whole thing that like uh, people are really into guns? Like I'm not really that into guns. Guns are like a pen for a writer to me. It's just like a tool I use in the job. It's not an extension of my penis. Like I'm not like that into them. It's just a thing. Like, right. It's an object, right? That I use and that I know how to use quite well, right? Um, but you know. So the first thing is like, like, let's make them safe. Like, let's figure out how to lock them up. Like, you know, all these guns that are used in crimes, like most of them start off in a like legal fashion and then they're stolen or there's a straw purchase and all of this stuff. Right. If you have a gun in the home, you're more likely to commit suicide losing a gun. And this is this is a personal issue because veterans are particularly affected by gun issues. Right. And you know, we, we forgot 
to say it or we didn't say it, but like today's Veterans Day, which is why it's so cool that we're doing this together and we get to talk about these issues. Um, but yeah, like it, you know, the the dirty little secret of veterans suicide is that veterans have a higher incidence of using um, guns in suicide, right? And there is there is a problem which is now becoming well known and, and well documented of veteran suicide. You right? know, uh, I think it was two years ago I was hanging out with you on Veterans Day and we did a beach workout in Venice Beach. And then you said, hey, you want to do this thing called, uh, was it 22 for yeah. 22? Yeah. So, something like that, exactly. where you do 22 push-ups um, in 22 days. 22 days, what was it? It was like 22 push-ups a day for 22 days to honor the fact that there are 22 veteran suicides in America every single day. Right. Super good, super important cause. I like. Uh, I'm proud of you and our friendship that you remember that. Apparently, oh, yeah. this is our Veterans Day tradition. We do a workout, and then like we talk about the ideas of of the day and the issues of the world. So it's yeah. a good tradition. Um, so uh, what what would you see as some solutions to the the gun issue right now? Because um, and we can then go into this, but firepower is an issue that we're covering in the motherfucker awards this year and you're going to be the um the presenter in that issue which i'm really happy about because i didn't want a granola eating hippie uh even though you are right. deep down <laughs> you, know, you don't look it to present it because i think that this is a really nuanced issue and you know, a lot of people, uh, that was the one issue this year that um, I've, I had some people say, you know, you might not even want to cover this. You might not want to talk about the NRA because it's so polarized. And I'm like, you know what? We're we're already the other guys by doing the motherfucker awards. We can't come at this thing from a, a place of fear and a place of wondering what we're going to be thought of. So, and I'm really happy that you can take this on because you have such a nuanced view of the issue. It is it is a huge honor to talk about this subject, and I think I can talk about it with like a small modicum of credibility because I use guns in my work. Um, I've used guns overseas, both both in in uniform, and I've covered conflict after my active duty time for a long time. So I know both like the utility and the impact and the consequences of firearms, right? Um, and I also know like what the proliferation of firearms means, whether what that means for low intensity conflicts in in places that I've been, like in small wars like Mali and West Africa and, and Somalia, right? I know what the proliferation of guns means in those places. Um, and even like, <laughs> gotta give a shout out to our our animal lovers out there, right? Like I've even like tracked like um, arms, uh, rifles that are made you know, in the United States and then end up in um, in places like uh, Zimbabwe Mozambique, are, and yeah. Mozambique that are used for hunting the C and poaching. The CZ Arms that you're referring exactly. to, right? So right. CZ Arms is an arms manufacturer that is uh, used in over 90% of all wildlife crimes uh, and rhino crimes specifically. Um, right, and we've poached which, like the, the 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 rhino, almost the black rhino. I think it is almost to the edge of extinction. Right. We can directly correlate and link that to guns that were manufactured in the United States. Not that there wouldn't be poaching without those, without that specific gun, but that's the most prolific at every wildlife crime. Like you know, two out of three wildlife crimes, they find the same firearm, right? Or brought it out. But is that a, 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 does that draw culpability to that firearm manufacturer or is that just 
the like a tool that they're using and the issue is the economics of the whole situation that rhino horn is still so expensive you'll have some you know chinese millionaires that are willing to buy it so it's worth it for these poor africans to poach the animal like it's both Both. this is why like this is like why i like talking about this stuff it's both right people have some culpability for every action and what they do so you decide to make guns like you have some you bear some responsibility for that you know arms manufacturing is a very lucrative business and as we say in the navy we use these two acronyms rahip and raher so rank has its privilege right so like it's a very lucrative industry that you've been in right but also raher as a naval officer rank has its responsibility Right? So you have a responsibility for your actions. Like, Of course, the more macroeconomic incentives are one of the prime drivers. But if you want to change these things, if you want the black rhino to survive, right? or like, let's take it out of, out of animal, out of the wildlife kingdom and, and into you know, the human domain, right? this year is going to be the deadliest year on record in Mexico. So I can't remember the number now because I haven't been down there in a couple months covering it, but it's going to be something insane, like 72,000 deaths in the cartel war down there in Mexico. Many, many, I don't want to say the majority, but I believe it's the majority. I have to like refresh all the stats, right? Those are American guns that are being shipped south to be used in the cartel wars in Mexico and killing tens of thousands of Mexicans. So look, there are much bigger issues like the U.S. demand for drugs. As you know, I'm finishing a series on narco-trafficking. The U.S. demand for drugs is a macro issue that's driving that, right? But that doesn't mean that we can ignore the individual responsibility of, like, of manufacturers to be responsible for their sales. And it doesn't mean that we don't have like a cultural responsibility to make sure that we have like safe and and legal gun practices right yeah i i think that you can you i think that's very well said and i bring it up a lot but another example of a manufacturer being responsible for their product is purdue pharmaceutical exactly right and we're seeing that in uh we're seeing this in the pharmaceutical domain but we haven't seen that same level we've seen like attempts at it that same level of responsibility um attached to to gun makers right and there's all kinds of lobbying stuff uh, what's so cool is like all of this is foreshadowing for the motherfuckers oh, yeah. on December 3rd. This is like literally why we're doing the motherfuckers, but it's also why I feel comfortable hosting this controversial category, right? Is because I don't think anybody's going to accuse me of being anti-gun, right? Like I'm not, I'm not Beto O'Rourke. Like I'm not coming for your AR-15s and your AK-47s, right? Like what I am saying are that there are mechanisms on the gun debate, right? that can help curtail the negative extern the negative externalities is redundant the externalities associated with with gun manufacturing and with the proliferation of arms we're the most armed nation on earth you'll hear me say it on stage on december 3rd right and uh, there's repercussions and to that stat and last year more kids died in school shootings than active duty soldiers died right i that's a cruel- i hate that shit I hate that shit, and and I I could bore your audience all day long with what we do about it, like the tease that I'll say about that. um, It's like, like liberals haven't figured, liberals don't get it on this, right? There's an urban-rural divide. Like, liberals don't get it, and like conservatives are too entrenched, and that's why we haven't made any progress on this issue. I think there's a bunch of ways that you actually can make progress. One little tease is that 
there's no private sector solutions here. The private sector, Silicon Valley's made some like weak ass attempts to make like a smart gun, never gonna work. These are primitive objects, right? It's not about making a smart gun. We're not gonna like iterate technology our way out of this problem. We gotta make some cultural changes. We need some private sector solutions, uh, and I think it Wait, can we get need, better. We, we need private sector solutions? Yeah. You do? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Because, look, the public sector, because all the shit we talked about before, has proven an inability to make progress on this subject. Every time there is a school shooting, gun sales go up. The public sector government has failed to make this issue better. And I think that is something that both gun control advocates and pro-gun people can agree on. Government has failed to make this solution better. So This problem better. This pro- yeah, so, so what are some of those private sector solutions that you would advocate for? Uh, I don't think that they're... Um, how about, like, an incentive? Um, uh, an incentive on your homeowner's insurance or on your renter's insurance if you can prove that your gun is safe and responsibly locked up. Okay, I'm an insurance company. I, I haven't I haven't done the math. They got like much smarter thousand pound brain dudes to to calculate it. But I suspect that like if somebody commits suicide or somebody is like assaulted in a crime and there's an insurance payout on that, um, or a gun is stolen and they have to insurance has to pay for it, right? Um, there's a cost to all of that, right? And there's a human cost and there's an economic cost and stuff. Maybe we can figure out a way that uh, insurance companies can um, give an economic incentive to make sure that guns are safer. Going back to my mantra, which I borrowed from the abortion debate, safe, legal, and rare, right? Um, And so, like, you lock up guns tomorrow and, like, half our problem goes away because guns aren't stolen. They don't end up in crimes, right? Like, you know, a a lot of people... They keep their gun like under the bed, right? Yeah. Like or in the, the the nightstand, right? Right. Well, because and then it, it gets stolen in, in a in a crime and all that stuff, and then it ends up in a bad place doing a bad thing. Right. And do you think that there's a place for the public sector or the government to uh, enforce more thorough background checks on people before they get guns? And do you think that that would help? Yeah, I think there are reasonable checks that most Americans actually agree on, but because of the polarization of our debate, right? Like the. The public polling on this supports what you're intimating. Right. That most um, reasonable Americans say, like, God, I got to go to the DMV, take this, like, stupid driving exam, like, and then I got, like, all these, like, rules and regulations around it, like, and that's that's a car, right? And, like, guns don't have all of that. I think most Americans believe that there is, like, a common middle ground um, for, for that. Yeah, and I don't know if you... But the polarization of our debate is, like is preventing that from happening because the both camps are so entrenched. Yeah, and I don't know if you meant to do this, but you just alluded to really the issue, which is that um, government is not representing what most people uh, want. So, so you have most people that want stronger uh, gun laws, but you have the NRA financing people financing politicians campaigns and ensuring that no legislation will be pushed forward and you can look at this i mean this is really the story that we're trying to tell with the motherfucker awards this year and that's why we've uh begun to include politicians and lobbyists in our nomination process because that is really the system it's that you know even if a bunch of people want something to happen um it's very difficult now to get politicians to do something for you unless you pay them 
And and the NRA is a great example of that because they have this kind of mobster style where they don't even necessarily need to finance a a, a campaign. They'll just say, they'll just say, uh, <laughs> we're we're on a boat right now, by the way, and we have uh, some some uh, friends going by on a stand up paddleboard, uh, fl- flashing, flashing us. us. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're males though. Did, they're did, males. Did we? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, don't get too excited. Everyone, yeah. t- take yeah. your time. Take your time. We're we're, we're, we we're, we're bringing it way too down dark with with thank God, thank God, James Arthur Smith, who's like one of the best like surfer <laughs> photographers I know, just paddled by with his shirt off and waved at us because it was we were in a graveyard spiral we of darkness. Were, we were. Yeah, and like, he can just we like us the light. this is like so kaj. Like, I don't know how you're friends with me. I'm like no fun at parties. I'm like the torture guy, the war zone guy. Like, look where we are, Kyle. How did we not start with podcast yachtcast? I was gonna mention. I think I mentioned it in the in the, <laughs> the intro, but let's do it again right now. I mean, we're on an amazing yacht right now in Marina del Rey, uh, having a grand old time on this beautiful boat. So, yeah. yeah, we do have a tendency to get real dark. But yeah, but I, I mean, shoot, you and I care. I think that we have an earnest quality about ourselves that makes us want to. I, I'll speak personally, like. I think these issues are important and to be able to talk about them and for just for my own understanding really is the the reason that I do it. I, I like this podcast is for an audience of one. I like doing this because I like the incentive to be able to have this kind of conversation with you and and understand. Like I know that I'm still wrong about a bunch of stuff that I think and that's important for me to recognize and talking to people like you helps me become a clearer thinker and less wrong god thank god somebody's still willing to be wrong i'm wrong so fucking much you know like but um you know strong convictions held loosely or whatever right like we want to be passionate but then we want to be able to absorb new information and change our minds because of new information that happens so i i, I try and live that mantra back when uh, back when I was practicing journalism more frequently, I'm on a small journalism hiatus uh, right now for for reasons you you know well, uh, which I'm happy to talk about. Uh, but um, no, like back when I used to practice journalism, I thought that was really essential to the good practice in in journalism, which is that you had an idea in your thesis, but you were willing to both like seek out um, counter narratives and opposing viewpoints in order to try and chisel away at a sculpt like a sculptor at what the essential truth is yeah well it's an orientation towards conflict and that's something that i'm still trying i'm i'm i think a lot of ways naturally averse to conflict like i'm not a fighter if i'm out at a surf spot and someone snaps i just get like a st- i'm like dude i don't need to, i don't need to fight for this this is fine like i've i very rarely get into fights in the water and i travel a lot go to a lot of amazing surf spots and i rarely get into conflicts because i don't have that kind of like i need this wave i'm gonna go get it but i think that there is something to that also with just conversation where it becomes uncomfortable for people who disagree. Like we don't know how to disagree anymore and don't know how to feel uncomfortable and feel wrong. And that's something that I'm actively trying to get better at. 
Can I offer a counter narrative to that bullshit story that you just told? Like, like, you're also like a really good fucking surfer, which helps you avoid conflict. <laughs> yeah. I'm a really mediocre surfer, but I'm a really good fighter, right? right? So like, right. I yes. get in a lot more trouble than you do in the water. Like, you could just like surf your way around. Like, somebody drops in on you, you just like boost, like, you know, no grab, punt, 360, I'm not even using the right words, like, over them and keep going, right? I have no choice but to, like, you know, launch myself off my board in, like, an NFL (laughs) tackle and then try and choke somebody out underwater, you know? No, it it, it does help knowing how to surf. I I, I appreciate you calling me out on that bullshit story. That was, like, that's, like, a, a really attractive girl being, like, oh, my gosh, like, people always stop. Uh, in their cars at stop signs like the, people are just so nice it must be because I'm such a nice like no dude you're pointing to the wrong thing like, right. you, you actually know how to surf but no, I, um, I do I the, do believe I, I do know what you're saying but yeah. I just wanted to make fun of you for your absurdly good surfing ability uh, anywho now I'm getting all flush and red thanks man um, no but I I uh, I still hold true to just uh, conflict and, and working through difficult conversations um, and right now I'm going to make you work through a difficult conversation. Yeah, bring you it. know where I'm going bring right it. now. I, I, I don't, you know? but I'm excited. Well, uh, the reason that you've taken a hiatus from oh, journalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let, let's do it. I'm happy to talk about it. In fact, I'm super happy to talk about it because nobody ever asked me about it, right? And in fact, nobody asked me about it like when it happened. And like I've never even really had the opportunity to express myself. And it, it does relate back to this larger conversation of both misinformation, the propagation of misinformation, and um, also that people can't think in nuance. Um, And tribalism, to some degree, identity politics being wielded as a weapon. But I was falsely, like, it's not even, like, really accused. I was, like, uh, an article came out um, that insinuated that I had, like, created, like... a culture of harassment towards one of my employees. So like single sourced article where the reporter never like reached out to me and basically maligned me and, and said like, Oh, like he created this environment. Um, and insinuating that I had like sexually harassed one of my employees. Right. And so this is at the height of me too and all of this stuff. And like, even though like you, like most reasonable people could read the article and they'd be like, wait, I'm not sure this is a thing. Like this doesn't sound, uh, you, in the context of the times, it was really explosive, right? But what were, what were the allegations against you? One was that, like, I had the employee over to my house for a meeting, and I showed up with my shirt off, right? Um, and true, but lacking total context. Like, I had just come in from surfing, and I was late, and I had a CNN appearance, and it was like, the, and I worked from home, like, all of this stuff, like, things, things like that, that I had told her she needed to be nicer to men at the company, which was like a total bastardization. I said, like, you need to behave civilly towards employees. But, you know, bottom line, I had this, like, incredibly underperforming employee. Um, I was, like, I was tough on her, um, partially because I, I hated her work ethic. Hate is a strong word, but, like, I disapproved of her work ethic. Things like Snapchatting at meetings and, like, um, pretending to be... Uh, at work when you're actually home on vacation, like flying home and vacation. So anyways, bad employee, acrimonious relationship, like plenty of things that I in my life would do differently. Like um, even though I work from home, like now like in this current context, I would never have employees over to my house, even though I did it like 
a hundred times with like employees of all genders, but like it's like a different era now. So I'm totally willing to take that on. And like, look, I feel bad. Like maybe in her mind, there were some things that made her uncomfortable, but like this was the farthest thing from harassment. Like, uh, and like I said, I'm always man enough to admit my stakes, mistakes. And like that wasn't the, um, and I'm sorry if it like made her feel bad. Like, I will tell you that what really has happened is like somebody taking advantage and creating an ex post facto narrative. Um, and there's like two forces that combine together, like this sort of inferno of me too, like scorching, not that there's really important stuff that came out of me too. The work that Ronan Farrow did extraordinary, right? Like absolutely extraordinary. Um, and a really important cultural reckoning. And actually, you know, my, my shorthand thesis is that like, like these kind of bullshit things that aren't true, um, detract from all of the important and essential values of, of that important cultural movement. So bottom line, I was like falsely accused. Uh, it had all these nefarious effects for me because I was associated with like all of these bad people, right? And like, and this sort of like group think and the like lack of nuance and for ability of people to think. Um, and frankly, the fact that like, you know, the sort of raging mob inferno, like that thing happens. Like, yeah, it all it all got me caught up. And it's, you know, it, it's been like one of the biggest professional struggles of my career, like partially because, um, you know, it overwhelms because of the way that digital media works and all of this stuff. This small bullshit, like not true thing, all right, of being accused of harassment overwhelms everything else I've ever done in my life. Doesn't matter that, like, I'm a decorated Navy SEAL. Like, doesn't matter that I'm an Emmy Award-winning journalist. Doesn't matter that I've, like, risked my life dozens of times to go into conflict zones and report the actual truth. Like, none of that body of work matters. All that matters is this, like, bullshit article that came out two years later where a reporter didn't even bother to call me, right, and ask me. Um, so, yeah, it's been... It's been super tough, man. So, and in what ways has it been tough? For it's you? been how's, tough professionally. How's right? it, how's it affected? Because well, I work in I work in television, right? right. So, uh, um, any like it's it's absolutely radioactive, right? So there's all these people who you know haven't, and mostly I just ignored it, right? Like I didn't want to like feed the fire, right? Because it like people who know me know like this is like wildly untrue and like not even close to reflective of my character, you know, it sort of reminds me, this is probably an imperfect metaphor that I shouldn't say, right? But like, I, I had a, like a little bit of like, uh, a little bit of like a heartache with the way that the extreme progressive left took on Amazon in New York City. And they were gonna build a new Amazon headquarters too. And there was, and I was sort of like, hey look, I get it fair wage like i i support all of these values but jeff bezos like he's one of the good guys man like he you know he bought the washington post he has done more like deep investigative stuff than that and like um i don't i'm mixing and muddling a lot of thoughts and like i hope i don't sound too defensive it was it was just like a hard time in my life but uh you know even obama came out the other day and basically called out like woke pc cancel culture or whatever and he's like look it's gone too far like and so when when obama is like and obama never says anything too forcefully so if he says anything at all you have to kind of read into what he's saying and basically what he's saying is that like it's gotten extreme so anyways that's a long like 
muddled version no, of something I that I've I, been dealing with I for two years. I appreciate it though, yeah. and I've I've been right by your side. For, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. So I, I and I have, have seen a lot it. of great people. Right, right. Like a, a lot of great people, and and a lot of people like who don't even know me. One thing that's good about crisis is that you really you find out really fast who your friends are. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Some people stop calling you back real quick. Real, real quick. Right. Um. They they stop calling you back. Um. And like I get it. It's uh, at first glance, like it appears, you know, like it's it's kind of salacious, and you don't want to touch it. And there, there's all these like really gross people associated like with this, like you know, <laughs> the the irony that like me who was like raised by two strong women i consider myself like as like i consider myself like as much an ally uh, as you could get right the guy who joined like the lgbtq club at harvard so that i could be an ally for like gay civil rights right like the guy who volunteers to teach women self-defense like the idea that i was like accused of of doing this is like it's so an anthema to like who I actually am that it's, it's really, really hard, you know, it's super hard on my mom and my sister, right? Like all, all of that stuff. But, um, who was the, uh, guy that you referenced who you said has done a lot of good reporting about the me too issue? Oh, Ronan Farrell. Ronan Farrell. Tell me about this. And what's, what is that position? Because I think that it's important also to fascinating character to take on, like, yeah. just tell me about this Do you know guy. Who he is? No, he's, I don't. he's, he's, he's Woody Allen and Mia Farrow's son. Um, although I think, I don't know. This is like way far out of my domain. Like there, there's some debate about who his actual dad is, but I think like according to to everything that I know, he he is um, he is the son of Mia Farrow, who was married to Woody Allen. I can't remember who his actual dad is, uh, but the um, he was a journalist working at NBC. Like did all of the hard muckraking work, like good old school investigative journalism on Weinstein, and the story just kept getting killed because of like powerful, powerful interests. And he like, and then he worked and he worked and he worked and eventually released it in a New Yorker piece, right? And then there's two other New York Times reporters who also like sort of simultaneously like did a deep dive. And I like, I feel really ignorant that I'm forgetting their name, but they, they won the Pulitzer for this. They're also extraordinary investigative reporters. And uh, so between the three of them, they basically with these investigations kicked off the Me Too movement, which started like Inferno Wildfire. Right. And like any wildfire, like um, it uh, it did a lot of good. But like in my reading of it, like it also scorched some innocent people along the way of which, unfortunately, like I'm in that small category. And like it, it, we can talk about it as much as you want. But like the last thing that I would say on it, uh, you know, in regards to like um, the person who accused me is like, like, look, maybe in your mind, like two years later with all this, you know, with the, with like me too, you, you think that this was somehow some form of sexual harassment towards you, like, and you felt bad, like, but here's like the most important thing. Feelings are not facts and intention matters. And there is no way in a bazillion years, right? Whether we were like boss, employee, like whatever, that there was an intention to do anything of a sexual nature. I've never done it. It was drilled into me since I was 17 when I entered the Navy to not fraternize. I've like never done it in, you know, a 20-year career and I certainly didn't start with this one like poor underperforming employee with like a history 
of of lying at work. Right. Yeah. And and how would you define the good that has come from the Me Too movement? Oh, well, look, I think um, there was like a lot of shady shit that was happening like in almost every sector, right? Like this like patriarchy, like that's real. Like women have gone through like a tremendous amount of like quid pro quo to use the term du jour, like, you know, like both tacit and explicit discrimination like my first time I had ever done something in Hollywood uh which was like we made me and Josh Soskin who you know like made this like dumb little short film like I'm a non-scripted guy right but we made a narrative film and it was like my first narrative film and I was like really excited and we like cast for it and you know for me I'm entertainment adjacent I'm a journalist right like I'm a war zone journalist right but occasionally because of my work in, in non-scripted, I get to dabble in the scripted world, like th- this new movie that's that's coming out, The Report, and all this stuff. So Josh Soskin and I were making our movie, my first little movie. We hire, we rent a casting studio. We audition all of these people, like, all day long, you know? And it's Hollywood, so it's like a total grab bag. You get, like, weirdos and, like, you know, tons of beautiful people and, like, all of, all of this, this assortment, motley cast of, of characters. Anyways, at the end of the day, and, and we had, like, kind of, like, organized the room to be conducive to our casting at the end of the day josh and i wrap up everything and like we're putting the furniture back because our buddy patrick newell who's a great dude got us a uh, a good deal on the casting studio so we had to kind of clean up ourselves right and so i'm like moving one of the couches and as i pull back one of the couches there's like a pair of like crusty panties on it it was like literally the casting couch <laughs> Which is like a cliche in Hollywood, but I literally found the casting couch. I'd never seen anything like that before, right? Like, that shit is real, and women have had to put up with that forever, right? And so I think, um, you know, one of, the, one of the many positive things that has come out of Me Too is a really, like, fundamental re-examining of workplace dynamics. Now, what's important, though, is that we can't replace one fucked up power system with another fucked up power system, right? And like we can't like we have to find a better a better balance. Like in my case, like this entire like stupid thing was probably like a result of a massive miscommunication, right? And it could have been like had there been any uh, and like th- this was particularly true I was working at Vice at the time. Right, like Vice is a place that, you know, made its bodes. Like the first Vice video I ever saw was about um, men losing their virginity to donkeys in northern Colombia. I think I showed you that video. The asses of the Caribbean. Asses of the Caribbean, yeah. Set set me off on my journalism career. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I was like, people can do this? Yeah. I I actually interviewed uh, Ryan, um, the dude in in that that doc. Oh, yeah. Ryan, uh, gosh, what's his last name? Spacing on it. Something. Anyway, we'll all think of it. Yeah, he's a badass vice journalist. Yeah, yeah, we were, I, we, were at, we were at Vice together. Yeah. And then we did some anti-smoking stuff for the Truth Campaign together. Um, God, why did why did you infect me with this, this brain lock right now that I can't think of Ryan's last name <laughs> we'll, either? We'll think of it. Damn yeah. it. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. Um, here you keep talking. I'll look it up. Uh, but yeah, I've I've, inter- I've had a number of vice I, journalists on. Only because since. I won't be able to talk about it until we, you know, my brain's now yeah. whirling on it. I'm in like gridlock. Um, so yeah. Anyways, long story short, Vice had all these fucked up cultural problems. Duffy, Ryan Duffy. Damn it, Duffy. Sorry about that, bro. 
Yeah. I'm embarrassed. Ryan Duffy. Now yeah. I've had Ryan on and I and I also had Thomas Morton on. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Little Thomas Morton. Uh yeah, look, we Vice is a complicated place again to this nuanced conversation, right? Like I showed up and it's like all of the things that this article like attributed to Vice, um, this particular article uh, that referenced me attributed to Vice, there was a lot of truth to what was going on. It was like a boys club. Like it was a fucked up place to work. Like I just wasn't part of it. I just wasn't part of that old boys Vice culture. In fact, I was barely there. I worked from home or from Africa basically. And so, yeah, like, look, it's a shame that I like um, that there was this misunderstanding. Like um, it's also a shame that like a piece of bad journalism like amplified something that like didn't measure up to like the actual veracity of the really important movement well, that it was trying to reference. Didn't uh, the New York Times come out with another totally. article that then didn't include you? Yeah, in yeah. That? I, I was vindicated by multiple investigations, like uh, in, uh, like multiple independent investigations. Right, the the outlets that I the journalism places that I work for now, uh, two of them independently commissioned outside investigations from like a Mossad security firm, like all of these, right? The New York Times did this like exhaustive like like investigation, six months long, where they interviewed like a hundred current and former vice employees. They mentioned all like seven people by name, including my boss, who like most people with a really, really subtle nuanced article a reading of the article that referenced me will realize that I was just like a hook to talk about these larger cultural issues at Vice. Like in my case, though, she just got it flat out wrong, right? Because she never called me, the reporter who wrote the article. She never called me. She never, she never got that counter narrative, counter perspective, as opposed to the Times, which did this exhaustive investigation. Like, you know, obviously my thing came up and they're like, this is bullshit. They didn't even reference, they yeah. didn't even mention my name. Right. Yeah. And, and the issue that I took with it is that. Yeah, they, they didn't call you and that there was no room for recourse. I, I think that you said it really well that, that by replacing one fucked up power system with another is not the solution. Um, and these are just tough conversations to have, man. And I, I appreciate you having it with me. And I, I, we're going to Yeah, buddy, you're, you're breaking news here. Like, I've barely talked about this. Like, you know, look at you in the that's, vanguard of journalism. Yeah, man, that's <laughs> me. I just get the truth serum in the water. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you told me once, uh, this is, I think this year, you're like, you know, it's been a really rough year and, and we've had a number of other friends that have had rough years. We don't need to get into it. But you said that what saved you through this time was your daily habits. And you said, you're like, dude, my, my exercise routine, the way that I had set up my life just to be habitual is what got me through this tough period. And I thought that that was really... Um, you know, yesterday we did, we'll get into it, but we did the uh, Veterans Day workout with Tulsi Gabbard. And she said, uh, she, in front of the big group, she said, you know, Jocko Willink has this quote where he says, life is about binary decisions. It's about ones and zeros. It's about yeses and nos. And you've chosen to say yes and no in a very, um, I guess, uh, just, what's the word? Just... You, you set yourself up very well to make it through these tough times. And I think that that is, I, I want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, totally. Look, we're all going to get punched. Life right. is going to punch you, right? Uh, um, I think our buddy Chris Ryan references uh, uh, Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes in his 
book as like you know the famous uh, quote life is nasty brutish and short I'm not sure I subscribe to that but like look there are times when like life's gonna throw like a left hook at you yeah. and you're gonna get hit and you're gonna get knocked down and it's about how you pick yourself back up deliberate was the word I was looking for you're very deliberate with the decisions you make yeah thanks like I mean what I've really done is like I'm like a shark I keep swimming like Look, at the end of the day, like, I'm a fucking Navy SEAL, right? Like, I didn't ring that bell in Buds, and I didn't ring it in Hell Week, right? And, like, I'm not going to ring the bell. I'm not going to, like, quit on life, um, even and even though there's challenges and there's things to be overcome. Trust me, it is really hard to have, like, aspersions cast on your character, especially when they're not true. And people who really, really know me, like fundamentally know how not true, like this one single incident was. Um, so, but like, what are you going to do? You're going to give up? No, like, fuck it. Like you keep working out, you learn new skills, you, you evolved. Um, you don't bounce back because uh, the way forward is not to bounce back, but is to move through. Um, and so you continue, or I have continued to try and um, believe that ultimately the horizon of truth in, uh, is, is the arc of truth is long, but it bends towards, towards justice, right? So while it's been uh, a challenging couple of years, right? And it, it, you ask most people and they're like, wait, this like impacted you? Like, fuck yeah, it impacted me. Like somebody called my character into question. Believe me, in like these polarizing volatile times, like if anybody does that, Right. Like it is has a serious impact on your career and your life, like make no bones about it. But um, the habits that I've instilled, which is one, um, some of that discipline, like even from Jocko. Jocko is my first jujitsu coach, by the way. No way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Back in the Task Force Bruiser days. Uh, Jocko is unadulterated Jocko, though, like just as a total side note, like <laughs> he, like what you see is what you get with Jocko. Like he is that guy and he's the real deal. So anyways, yeah, like I, I, there are no, there are no panaceas for like recouping from the challenges of life. But I'd say the closest thing that we have or that I've found is, is exercise. Uh, exercise is extraordinarily important, whether it's from endorphins or whether from, oh, just like resetting of your parameters and values. Uh, yeah, like, I went through, I'm going through some hard stuff, right? But, like, it's not cancer, you know? My buddies got shot and killed and blown up overseas, right? It's something we should totally acknowledge on Veterans Day, right? Um, like, I'm in, like, we just, we did a workout yesterday. We, did, we, just, did, we just came from my CrossFit gym, right? Like, I, I do okay, right? Like, um, you know, like... I, yeah, no, I was really funny is yesterday you hit me up and you said, hey, man, I'm doing a beach workout at, at 2 p.m. with no other details. So I'm like, oh, sweet. I'll show up. So I go down to the beach and Kaj's gym, CrossFit Santa Monica. Sometimes you guys do beach workouts, which I love because I'm a junior guard from Santa Cruz. So it's like my my shot at actually doing OK, because I was pretty good at flags and a few of those sand beach out beach workouts. As am I, bro. JG for life. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like it's sand is like molasses for most people. But yeah. if you grow up in Santa Cruz, it's like, you know, it's, it's your uh your world. Anyway, so I get down to the beach and there's like 50 people at this workout. I'm like, whoa, Kaj's gym is blowing up and they're all wearing Tulsi Gabbard shirts and hats. I'm like, oh, people are pretty into Tulsi. 
That's cool. Like, yeah, I heard her on on Rogan. I'm a fan of Tulsi Gabbard. She's she's anti-establishment and going for the truth. Uh, and then I see Tulsi there. I'm like, oh, Tulsi's doing the workout. And then and then Kaj and Tulsi are like standing next to each other, and they're like, all right, we're doing this Veterans Day workout. And then I remember that you told me like, oh yeah, I know Tulsi. We we were veterans together. You guys, you said that you did a fellowship together, and we do this awesome workout with like 50 people. And then at the end of it, um, you know, everyone's getting photos of Tulsi and um, I that we go back to the to the gym and I, you know, started talking to her and I showed her a little clip about the motherfucker awards. And then and then she laughed and and you're like, oh, yeah, and Kyle does a podcast, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, she's got her people all around her and she's campaigning to try and be president. Um, and then right as she's leaving, because she's a surfer, because her husband's a surf photographer, she's like, Kyle, like your surfer. I'd love to do your podcast sometime. I was like. Fucking yeah. Kaj Larson just invites me for a workout and it ends with an interview that I'd got with Tulsi Gabbard. <laughs> yeah, well, we haven't done it yet, so we'll see if it actually happens. But that was a pretty cool, uh, cool way of you uh, it, pulling me in and, for and sure. making it happen. And it'll happen because uh, Tulsi's awesome. Like you said, we're, we're, we're friends and we're veterans who respect each other through our continued service to the country. You know, whether it's me through my reporting or, or her through what I like to jokingly describe as her office job which is being a member of congress where she sits on um i think foreign affairs and armed services really really important stuff so uh tulsi's awesome um we're friends she called me up like it wasn't she called me up actually like the day before and she's like gosh let's do a veterans day workout and i was like yeah let, let's do it and it was awesome because it wasn't a, a political event right it wasn't like tulsi for president uh it was like hey let's honor veterans through sweat and service, uh, and I, I always believe that like both service and friendship trumps politics, hundred uh, percent of the time, every time, uh, and that's what we did. And it was awesome to have you there, uh, smoking some of the guys. You did, you did show your JG prowess. You represented SCJGs yeah, was, quite well. I, I will say. No, you know, I also really felt that camaraderie that soldiers talk about. I was never in the military. I haven't experienced that. I you know, do CrossFit with you. But to, you know, I've read Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe, where he talks about you know, a lot of these soldiers being kind of sheepish to admit that wartime was some of the best times of their life because of that camaraderie that they felt. And I got a little taste of it in that workout yesterday, just seeing people cheer each other on and like a glimpse into that world. And, um, I, I could see that attraction to it, that kind of camaraderie that people, especially in our society now, don't feel. You know, we've talked about it, like atomization and loneliness um, is a real big issue that we face. And having that kind of group support um, feels good, man. It feels like you're on a drug. Um, and it was cool to be able to go experience that. Yeah, look, I'm unabashed about it, um, as, as I've become about most things these days. Uh, I'll just like, you know, call it straight as I see it. Like you might go to war with all these idealistic notions of why you're doing it, you know, country, patriotism, all of this stuff. Um, and that may or may not be true, but you certainly go back to war or you return to war in my experience because of the guys on your left and right. Hmm. And you go back to war for your for your brothers uh, that fought with you. Dude, we've been we've been going strong for a little while, but let's wrap it up on a good note. Um, oh, yeah. Can I take a stab at sure. it, and then you can do sure. a better do job? Uh, 
so like you asked me how you recover from hardship, right? Yeah. Uh, so one way is is through exercise and like what I call continuous motion. You just keep striving, um, and and with a faith that ultimately like the world is 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 just right. Um, but the other way you do it is through um, through the power of your friendships, right? And so you know, uh, for me, it's very difficult to ask for help. No matter like I'm the guy who comes and rescues people, right? Like, you know, I'm the guy who beats up bullies, right? Like, that is, like, I consider that my station in life, and it, uh, and I, I'm proud of that. Um, so it's really hard for me to be, like, hurting and ask for help, um, which, and in fact, I never did it, even through this period. But what did happen is, like, real friends, like, my closest friends, like, they reached out to me. They came over to my house like, this is how I can help you. This is what you need to do. This is what I can do for you. Uh, even, you know, this this yacht, this is a 75-foot Sunseeker that we're on, like five king bed staterooms like, or four and a crew cabin. Like, it's pretty extraordinary, right? Part of the reason we're sitting here is because my, my friend Jeff, who, who owns this yacht, um, has been like an extraordinary mentor and counsel to me in terms of helping me th- through like a bunch of navigating a bunch of difficulties right so like you can't just like while buds seal training is an individual effort you don't get through alone the same is true about hardship like you don't get through alone so i'm super grateful to you my friend jeff whose boat we're sitting on and like countless other people who showed up for me like when it was really really hard well yeah man i mean you uh you still don't know how to do a correct cutback so i needed to get you through that period so i could teach you how to do a full roundhouse <laughs> i get it drag your hand to the water yeah. how many times do you have to tell the, you don't the listen. same thing you don't listen you don't listen so i needed to make sure that you made it through that rough time so i like to think it's because i'm too buff to surf that good i'm sure know? yeah it's all that crossfit you're doing <laughs> fucking uh well um dude good times my friend i appreciate you sitting the sitting down um is there a where can people find you if they want to these days i'm i'm all about the gram which we pretty much tarnished in the yeah. first half of yeah. the interview make sure they get, get yeah. the kaj with one g not three g's yeah. that's <laughs> you don't want if, that one if he starts sending you dick pics yeah exactly <laughs> Just make sure it's not the hairy just, one. Just remember, no chest hair whatsoever. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's gosh, the key. If yeah. he sends you a dick pic, that's definitely the one. <laughs> right. Um, the uh, No, like, look, uh, as you know, I have, like, a new series coming out on Netflix and, and all of this stuff. But the easiest central collating point is I usually put out information on Instagram or on my website, which is kajlarsen.com, A-R-S-E-N. One J, <laughs> all that stuff. I'm sure, there's a box site going up right now. Like, um, but yeah. So look, the I'm on all those, all all them social platforms except for Twitter, which I nah, nah, not bad for America. <laughs> yeah. That's our show. I'm gonna play you out with a song called Bozos by Amadeu and Miriam. They are a couple from the country of Mali, and I love their music. You can uh, check out more of their music in the link below. And if you play a musician, if you're in a band and you want me to play some of your music, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. I'll give you credit in the show notes and link some people to your band. Thanks to everyone for listening. I love all of you. I really do feel like this is a great community of weirdos. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this show. And I hope to meet you all in person at the Motherfucker Awards. Once again, you can go to motherfuckerawards.com to get your tickets. This year we have presenters including Taj, Kelly Slater, 
Abby Martin, Lawrence Lessig. I'm booking a bunch of awesome comedians down in LA all month until the show and potentially even after. Just putting my heart and soul into this project. So for those of you who listen to this podcast consistently, um, I would love to meet you. Um, even if it's your first time listening, I would love to meet you. So hope to see you all there and sit back, relax, enjoy the song. Yeah.